No other object has been misidentified as a flying saucer more often than the planet Venus. Really? Even the former leader of your United States of America, James Earl Carter Jr., thought he saw a UFO once. But it's been proven he only saw the planet Venus. I'm a Republican. Venus was at its peak brilliance last night. You probably thought you saw something up in the sky other than Venus. But I assure you, it was Venus. I know. What I saw. Your scientists have yet to discover how neural networks create self-consciousness, let alone how the human brain processes two-dimensional retinal images into the three-dimensional phenomenon known as perception. Yet you somehow brazenly declare seeing is believing? Mr. Crickenson, your scientific illiteracy makes me shudder. And I wouldn't flaunt your ignorance by telling anyone that you saw anything last night other than the planet Venus. Because if you do, you're a dead man. You can't threaten me. I just did. Something happened to me last Thursday when I was driving home. I had a couple of miles to go. I looked up and saw a glowing orange object in the sky. It was moving very irregularly. Suddenly, there was intense light all around me. Welcome to Dulce Midnight Radio 3. Summer's here. The US government is doing UFOs again. Uh, Congress held a meeting the other week to discuss the uh, phenomenon. And this is synced up quite nicely with a great uh, three-part series that's just been posted over on um, Diabolique, Diabolique magazine by our guest tonight, uh, Robert Scavala. Uh, you can find him at Robert Scavala on Twitter, and I'll include a link to his uh, series in the show notes. And I'm joined once again as well by uh, Bradley from Michigan. Beamish, how's it going? Doing good, dude. Beamish, that's a, a terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do apologize. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's basically it's um, this is the part where I usually fall apart after I've done the intro because I always have trouble segueing to uh, where we're actually going. So do you want to try and give it a go, Bradley? Yeah, sure. This is guest uh, Ghost Stories guest host Bradley from Michigan, B-Mish. Uh, we're here with Robert Skfarla and Redacted, I think. No, or can, no, I say, everyone, can I say everyone, Matt? Yeah, everyone knows I'm called Matt now. It's fine. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm going to pop it on back to Matt here. 
Um, so yeah, basically, the, um, Robert, this art- article um, is about a UFO cover-up live, which was, uh, I'd never heard of it before. It was a TV show that aired in the 80s. So do you want to uh, give us a, a flavor of what the series is about and what you're concerned with throughout it? Yeah, so UFO Cover-Up Live was a live TV special that aired on October 14th, 1988. Um, It came allegedly live from Washington, D.C., and it went out on syndicated stations throughout the United States to about 130 different stations in various cities. The purpose of the program, you know, ostensibly was to reveal the startling truth about Uh, government cover-up of UFOs. In fact, promotional materials use the phrase startling truth. But what it actually did was um, it set UFO research back quite a bit. Um, And it was part of a series of, I don't know if you want to call them public disclosures, but it was part of a series of screw-ups that would happen over the next year, year and a half, that led to a fracturing of the UFO community. And I think... That 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 you mentioned there about it setting back the uh, disclosure movement, that was something that um, chimed with me and certainly my um, experience of dealing with this, this current disclosure movement because that seems to be ultimately what happens with most of these efforts. They, uh, they're incredibly counterproductive in the end. Would you say that's fair? Um, Absolutely. So in the first part of the series, I mentioned the fact that it, UFO Cover-Up Live um, exists on a continuum, you know, a spectrum of, you know, various actions undertaken by government or quasi-government agencies or representatives where they try to, or they claim they're going to reveal information about UFOs. So anyone who has like kind of a basic history of UFOs might be a little bored with this, but if you go back to the beginning, uh, 1947, led to things like the Robertson Panel and the Condon Committee. But ultimately, what we found with those is that nothing useful came out of it. For example, Edward Condon, the head of the Condon Committee, um, stated there was no scientific basis to continue research. When the United States terminated its official program for investigating UFOs, Project Blue Book, it said that there was no evidence to suggest that the sightings were extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial. I can't say that word. Um, but then we get to things like um, Deep Throat and Watergate in the 70s, and it changes the nature of how um, the country looked at disclosure as a concept. It was very big in that mm-hmm. decade. So going into the 80s, um, a lot of people were very cognizant of the fact that you know there were people within government who wanted to give information. And then UFO Cover Up Live sort of played off of that by promoting um, initially it was supposed to be, or at least in the advertising, it mentioned one intelligence operative, but the show actually gave us two and that tied into other things that were happening at the time, such as Majestic 12, which also offered, you know, a cosmic water gate, so to speak. I hate that phrase so much. <laughs> and it was used by a lot of people like Stanton Friedman, who was involved in the MJ-12 research, and other researchers at the time. They were talking of Cosmic Watergate. So yeah, it certainly seems like there's a kind of a few recurring tropes. I hate the word trope, but um, anytime there's a big push for disclosure, there are immediately a lot of very, um, shall we say, spooks with ambiguous motives who suddenly appear 
and start offering to reveal some great sort of transcendental truth. It never seems to quite arrive there. They, they seem to constantly string these researchers along. Every single time. Yeah. I, I, yes. I love the story in the uh, part one of your uh, article series that talks about the, uh, the producer going on boat rides with a spook. <laughs> yeah, so that that is contentious because no one knows if it actually happened. Um, it's one of those things that I included in there because it's mentioned in two separate sources. One, uh, a producer of the show I spoke to, Kurt Brubaker, who initially brought it up. And then it's also mentioned in a book that was released in the 2000s, allegedly from one of the intelligence operatives connected to UFO Cover Up Live and possibly MJ-12 and much of the disinformation that was being spread through the UFO community at the time. But it's just one of those anecdotes that sort of, you know, takes on a life of its own, I guess, in the UFO community. If you read a lot of the stuff that was coming out um, in newsletters and zines in the UFO community, um, stories like this would get told and retold over and over again. So it's one of those things that's hard to verify. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's not a detail we can find hard evidence for. It also seems to be a running theme to the UFO community. Exactly. Um, the purpose of UFO Cover Up Live, like I said, was to publicly disclose the existence of UFOs. The two central people in that production were um, our UFO researcher, William Moore, aka Bill Moore, and Jamie Chanderay, his research partner. They were primarily the ones who were being tasked with providing research to the show. Um, the show came together in the summer, I believe, of 88. The year prior, um, or sorry, in the two years prior, the production company responsible for the show had, you know, they'd gotten big hits with live TV specials. There was the notorious um, Geraldo Rivera special, The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults, which was ultimately a bust, but a huge success for TV. And then the following year, they did another one, Return to Titanic Live with Telly Savalas. So they were looking for, you know, pretty much any contentious subject that they could get. Um, they would actually release another one at the end of the year, the search for the Green River Killer, which didn't really, it was a flop, much like UFO cover-up live. But the purpose was just to find, you know, kind of really wild information and put it in front of the public so that they could exploit this. And UFO researchers love being exploited if they can get attention. So to what you were saying, Matt, before, uh, this is something that recurs a lot because in the UFO community, these people want attention and they're willing to take it from anybody they can get it from. Yeah, there's um, a quote actually that you included in the piece uh, by Vic Marchetti. Um, he wrote the, uh, the yes. CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. I won't read the full thing, but it's, it's very uh, piercing. It's very insightful. Uh, he says, from the intelligence point of view, ufology would be an easy field to disrupt. The people in it and their combined attitudes, their paranoia, their gullibility, make it easy to feed a few things at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there, to get everybody running in circles. And that sort of that uh, chimes with something you said, Robert, which is it does seem like the purpose of a lot of this stuff is to just drive people crazy basically well so yeah i'm a big disinformation mm -hmm. guy um a lot of the stuff i've been doing over the last two years either through my personal writing for my blog mondo americana or the diabolique series 
um, or just posting on Twitter is a lot of American history is just disinformation. It's stuff that governments put out there to whip people up into a frenzy for various reasons. And it's not always, you know, spooky. We can look at something like um, the Vietnam War and the second attack at the Gulf of Tonkin, which was um, fabricated so that we could get America into the war. We needed uh, pretext, much as we always do. It's something that always seems to recur. We see it again in the 2000s with the link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, which never actually existed. Um, And I mentioned both of those in my article um, or series of articles as examples of disinformation, because this is ultimately what a lot of the UFO community is about, disinformation. So much bad information flows through the UFO community because of the government. And it's not something that's recent. It goes back literally to the very beginning in 1947 with um, the crash at Roswell. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the uh, uh, disinformation and Iraq war thing because I – just on the concept of conspiracy theories, the topic of conspiracy theories, the Iraq war – like Iraq has WMDs is probably the most consequential conspiracy theory of the century, I think undebatably. Correct. Perpetrated by the government. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that with like the UFO people seem to just do it to themselves, with some he- with well, some they, help. Yeah, they want to believe. You know, exactly. it's that X Files expression. I want to believe. They're willing to um, take information from sources on the idea that this will help them achieve their goal. So frequently, that means they'll just accept it from just about anybody without looking into their background. Um, in this piece in specific, you get someone like Paul Benowitz, um, who I bring up and I know you've discussed in prior episodes, but Benowitz wanted so badly to believe that he was willing to trust the Air Force. Um, and specifically, uh, someone who worked in the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, Richard Doty, and the information ultimately did drive him crazy. And it's something that we see recurring over and over again in the UFO community and even more broadly, specifically today with the various, I don't know if you want to call them psychological operations, influence operations, but we see it with um, UAPs, we see it with Havana Syndrome, we see it with all kinds of things that that are being released or have been released. I think that's um, pretty interesting as well that, that you bring in Havana syndrome because now when it comes to the UAP thing, just like with Havana syndrome, the actual explanation, such as it is for what's going on that comes from the government seems to be switching. So initially they were fully unidentified um, aerial craft. Now they could be drone swarms. Yep. And just like with Havana syndrome, initially it was some kind of futuristic weapon that was possibly Russian or Chinese. Now it could be crickets. Now it, now the CIA came out and said, I think there's nothing to it at all. There is no Havana syndrome. And it all kind of feeds into this notion that the point is that um, it's just confusing and, and crazy making. No, absolutely. I mean, so there's a phrase within the military, and I know it gets brought up, I believe, in Mark Pilkington's documentary for Mirage Men. It's also mentioned again in um, Adam Curtis's um, hypernormalization, but it's the concept of perception management and how uh, an organization, and typically this is the military when we use this phrase, it's how they steer the perception of the public. And it's something that goes back, um, you know, as far as I can remember, um, at least to the beginning of the 20th century with people like Edward Bernays and propaganda, there are different ways to phrase this, but ultimately what it is about is steering a community in a specific direction. 
And um, one of the things that's great about Americans is that we don't have a coherent set of beliefs or an even overriding ideology. Um, Americans have many different bizarre beliefs, and you can use those to craft different campaigns. Um, so we see something like what we're seeing with UFOs or Havana syndrome. They're just building off of this. Um, they're building off of this aura era. I don't know what to phrase it as, but um, this era of conspiracy theories post Trump. Yeah, and that speaks to something that I've been thinking about uh, when it comes to the the way the ufology ufology community is um, pinning all their hopes on this this current apparent transparency that's coming from the government. We're now on the other side of a pandemic where the response was um, in, you know, inadequate to say the least. Uh, we're coming off the back of Trump as president, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, and there basically the government has no credibility anymore, but for some reason, this certain aspects of this, uh, ufology community are still insistent that this time we can trust them when they say that they're going to deliver the goods, you know? And the, the messengers for it too, like people like Luis Elizondo and Chris Mellon are also like the opposite of trustworthy, mm-hmm. like in every objective measure, like precisely, I, I just, I do, it's insanity. I don't understand it. Like I didn't realize that the, I want to believe thing was that strong. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you look at what's going on with Lou right now, in many ways, it mirrors what was happening with MJ 12, where allegedly government informants were leaking information. Um, What I argue in my series of articles, and specifically in the third article, is that um, the information coming from MJ-12 was probably coming from Doty, uh, much as the information that was used in UFO Cover-Up Live, a lot of it being built around MJ-12, was also coming from Doty. We know that Doty is a a mischievous trickster figure within the UFO community, and he's been this way for decades because he's released all kinds of bad information. But people keep returning to him because in America, there's this deference to authority. You want to believe someone within the government has these secrets and is going to give them to you. That that is a great Um, point. If if there's one thing that Americans across the board kind of do, we worship authority. And the UFO community specifically has a long history with – they have problems with boundary policing. They always want to bring authority figures in, whether it's um, cops to do investigations, um, whether it's um, government officials to give them information, whether it's, you know, bunk scientists to validate their wildest theories. Or Congress doing hearings about something. I don't really know what it's really about. There really wasn't much in that hearing. Yeah, I know. It was, it was very dull. I was uh, painting a t-shirt last night while I was listening to it, and I kind of just – they all just blended together. I just don't understand, like, what this is about. It's- Did you see the video that they pled? Yes. I, I made a joke on Twitter that it was basically the uh, – Congress was watching the type of videos the Fox Network would stitch together into compilations in the late nineties <laughs> because that was the quality of what we top were top ten most extreme UFO sightings. <laughs> UFOs behind the scenes. Even when they slowed that thing down, I was still like, "What the fuck am I actually?" It took me quite a while to see the the bit in the sky that they the, the little silver sphere thing. Um, yeah, right. it's just a little silver sphere thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I. I don't 
I just don't care, man. <laughs> like, there's a billion of these. Yeah. But, well, so it's useful if you think of it in the sense that people in the UFO community want – they need evidence. Right. So they're willing to take very poor examples and blow them up into these, you know – these bombshells. Um, I believe just the other day, the website, the debrief yep. dropped a video, which if you watch it, it looks like birds yeah, or something like that. Like birds. And they've had a tendency to do this in the past, uh, both the debrief and the UFO community. Um, there was that infamous Batman balloon yes. that went around for a while that people believed was a that UFO. That was one of my favorite so ones. The UFO community is willing to take any minor, you know, piece of evidence and make it into, you know, a definitive example of you. As they are with, it's just that's not how evidence right, works. As they are with, like, uh, assuredly, that's why the UFO community loves authority figures because it gives them some credibility. Right. Exactly. They're desperate for credibility, so they'll take anyone, including Lou, who has openly admitted, you know, in the time frame when he started working on the UFO project, he was also allegedly involved in counterintelligence in the UFO community, which would be suspect if you actually thought that through. Yeah, for one second. Like, it's... Man. Especially given the history of people like Dodie and exactly. Bill Moore. Given the fact that, you know, there's been infiltration of the UFO community in the past by yeah. intelligence. Did, or even the involvement of, like, the CIA and NICAP. I was just going to bring that up. Speaking yep. the work of someone like Jim Bru uh, Jack yep, Brewer. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. I didn't realize, like, when uh, Jack announced that book and that... I remember, I remember seeing him say that the CIA may have created NICAP. I always thought the CIA drove NICAP into dysfunction like they did with other political parties and stuff at the time. Right. That blew my mind. I started thinking about this stuff way differently then. Just for um, listeners who might not be familiar with this, what is NICAP? Do you want to explain that, Bradley? No, you'd know better than me, man. <laughs> Okay, so NICAP was another investigative body. I mean, there are many different investigative bodies that rose up during the um, 50s, 60s, and 70s, but it was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Right. So much as other organizations, it was still doing the same type of research. It was based out of Washington, D.C., so it had a semi-formal um, structure in the sense that it seemed like it was more legit than other institutions that were doing it like MUFON. And in fact, it had uh, one of its founders was Donald Kehoe, who was heavily involved in spreading the UFO mythology. And um, it's just, it's another example of one of those institutions that rise up in a period of lots of UFO coverage that isn't actually really contributing a whole lot, but it seems like it. One of the, one of the things from Jack Brewer's book that really stood out to me, because I didn't realize how big NICAP was compared to the Mutual UFO Network MUFON. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure yeah. the numbers in Jack Brewer's book were at NICAP at its peak was like 44,000 members, and MUFON has like 4,000 members. Right, and the work it was doing may have been better than MUFON. MUFON hasn't exactly been notorious for having good research. Do they even do work? Um, so they do. I, I've actually spoken to members of MUFON who try to make it seem like what they do is legit. And the fact that Congress has been taking um, some of their research, um, at least right. in the run-up to this most recent hearing, is a little questionable. Yeah. But I mean, if you're going to look to like a UFO research group, NICAP was much better than MUFON. Yeah. So yeah, just to bring it back to your um, series, Robert, um, there's 
quite a lot of stuff, especially in the second part, that I have heard here and there before, and I never realized it came from the show because when it when UFO Cover Up Live was actually released, it, it tanked in the ratings, and um, kind of both believers and skeptics didn't really care much for it. But there's a section here where you mentioned that the the secret government operative feeding information to the the show's producers. Um, he says that there is an alien on Earth who is actually a guest of the U.S. government, and he's living in a secure bunker somewhere. I I had heard that before, but I didn't realize it came from this show. So it's quite interesting to think that even though it was a failure, really, as a piece of um, entertainment, lots of the claims still kind of filtered out and percolated through the, the UFO community all the same. Absolutely. One of the things that's interesting about the show is there isn't really much written on it. Um, the most I could find is typically like references to it in other books. So it's referenced in the, um, the four books that have been written about Paul Benowitz, Greg Bishop's um, Project Beta, Mark Pilkington's um, Mirage Men, Adam Go Rightly's Saucer Spooks and Kooks, and Christian Lambright's X Descending. But it doesn't one of the things I found is that it just gets very kind of like scant references here and there. They don't delve deeper into it. And I actually, uh, at one point recently got to speak with Pilkington and he said it just, he didn't have room to fit it in. So I think one of the things is that it seems like this minor thing. And in many ways it is, it wasn't a success in, it was building off of information that was already out there um, with regard to MJ 12. But there are other things that are thrown in there, like the EBE, the alien, that Falcon, the one intelligence operative, refers to that uh, made it out elsewhere and have kind of been repeated and repeated again as, you know, these weird anecdotes regarding the UFO community. Um, but one of the things that sort of defines UFO cover-up live is the information that is on the show was building off of, like I was saying before, pre-existing claims made by Bill Moore and Jimmy Chandray for Majestic 12. I mean... I, there was one time I heard um, last September I saw John E. L. Tenney at a UFO conference in Michigan, and he was telling a story about um, the Kinross UFO incident in Michigan, where basically mm -hmm. uh, the two U.S. Uh, AF pilots like are sent to intercept a UFO over Lake Superior, and uh, it's just like the X Files: both dots on the radar screen come together and they both disappear, and they're never found. Um, he was talking about. When, when he started researching it, he realized there was a discrepancy in the way that um, one of the guys who disappeared, um, Robert L. Wilson's name was written. And it was just because the, like some of sometimes it was Robert L. Wilson. Sometimes it was a different like middle initial. Sometimes the middle initial wasn't included. And it was just because everybody else was copying each other's research and they weren't actually doing their own research. And I think that definitely... Uh, carries over to i guess any subject matter really right i mean so one of the things that you see in the books that have been written about this i'm going to reference adam go rightly's saucer spooks and kooks for Sweet. a moment and there he connects it to other conspiracies conspiracy theories that were prevalent at the time um mj12 pops up in the danny casalero saga because one of the individuals involved michael and I'm probably going to butcher his name. Um, Recon it's Reconosciuto. Um, sorry, I've, I've spent 
weeks and weeks trying to figure out how to pronounce <laughs> this guy's name. Yeah, so that's what I'm referring to. Um, he brings in elements of Majestic 12, like he references it in regard to um, the octopus. Majestic 12 sort of gets its tentacles into many different things because it's a very pliable conspiracy theory by the way it was set up by more um, Chandray and their intelligence operative, Doty. Um, because one of the things I reprint in the second article is uh, it's a flow chart um, of how they describe how MJ-12 worked. And the way they say it works was that information was flowing into MJ-12 from another secretive organization, Project Aquarius, which itself was getting information from the Defense Intelligence Agency and information was coming in to the DIA from DARPA, Area 51, parapsychology research units, and all of these other organizations. So you can make this into whatever you want it to be based on how they've built this. Yeah, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of. Exactly. One thing I wanted to uh, touch on real quick is um, he's never really talked about very much from what I've seen, but Charles Berlitz. Oh, yeah. He co-authored multiple books with Bill Moore, uh, ex-Army Intelligence. You bring him up in the article series. But he's also the guy who wrote the book about the Bermuda Triangle, Atlantis, and the Philadelphia Experiment. That went also with Bill Moore. Right. Now, one of the things, like I haven't looked too deeply into him Same. yet, but it's one, of the, it's one of those pieces where it seems interesting because I believe the first book Bill Moore is co-credited uh, co on is The Philadelphia Experiment in 79, if I remember I correctly. Right. Um, and then the following year is ultimately the book that makes Bill Moore a star and kind of establishes the UFO mythology within America. Um, on the Philadelphia Experiment, Berlitz was the primary author, and I believe um, Moore gets a co-credit, yes. but yep. it flips with Roswell Incident, yep. where Moore is the primary name on it, and Berlitz is um, the supporting author. And the Roswell Incident is actually the reason most people know of Roswell. Um, the event did happen in 1947. The newspaper clippings went out, you know, about flying saucer, and then it was a balloon, whatever um, the government was trying to spin it as. But then most people forgot about it until Moore's right. book became a bestseller in 80. So the Berlitz connection is interesting because it suggests that Moore may have had connection to intelligence earlier than many people recognize. He was writing a UFO zine in the 70s, so at some point he would have had to have found his way to Berlitz, and that connection hasn't really been explored by anybody, myself included. So it's something that I think maybe I or another researcher should definitely pick up at some point. With When it comes to someone like... Uh, Paul Benowitz and even this guy Michael uh, Riconner Shooter Shooter <laughs> weeks and weeks of reading about this guy and I still can't say his name Man, that's, it's, <laughs> that's as you said that's the show at this point yeah yeah mm -hmm. basically um, but yeah I find Rika I'll call him especially very interesting because he actually popped up and started spreading I think do you remember the story the Maury Island incident Bradley Absolutely. With the uh, Chris, Chris Min and everything, yeah. Yeah. So Rico says that he, um, I think either his uncle or his dad or something, um, was connected to the cleanup operation over that. This oh. is all. He um, also claimed that one of his uncles was involved in JFK, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> basically, I, just, I bring him up here because he seems to serve um, – as a disinformation agent, but also his 
his motives or his mission at least seems very uh, inscrutable. Um, he seems to have definitely be, definitely been planted in uh, Bill and Nancy Hamilton's life while they were going through the, the Inslaw lawsuit. But then while he was there, he seems to have been given the green light to throw out all this shit about UFOs and Area 51 and MJ-12. Um, I just find it interesting how they operate, basically. I mean, the, the one thing that has become apparent to me is that there's never really any downside to do, to doing so. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just like win, 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 win. I mean, I'm convinced that the entire mystique around um, Area 51, Dreamland, etc., in the Southwest is basically just uh, smoke and mirrors to uh, get away from the fact and actually being held accountable for the fact that the government exposed a shit ton of people to a shit ton of radiation. Mm. Um, yeah. I, th- th- there's never like with the current UFO disclosure feigning stuff, like it, there's no downside to doing this. And it's, it seems no. like Lou um, Elizondo, uh, I mean, I, speculation at that point but like i doubt he's happy doing this Mm -hmm. well so yeah to your point i think areas 51 served a number of purposes they needed an excuse to explain why all of these unusual things were happening there there were drone tests happening at area 51 since at least the late 60s with project aquiline so by the 80s when people started to become cognizant of what was happening there they needed some kind of story to say well, this is what's there. And it's better if people believe that we have secret UFO technology that we're testing or that UFOs are visiting Area 51 than it is if these people know this is stealth technology and maybe they trade it to the Soviet Union or someone else. Um, One of the concerns with Bill Moore um, and the intelligence community, at least to my mind, was that Moore spoke Russian. He was connected to uh, Soviet researchers Allegedly, in the course of my research for this, I spoke with someone who suggested that he may have been the one who brought the Soviets on to the project because there were some Soviet researchers uh, that appeared during UFO cover-up live. Now, what Bill Moore did with our government was he made a deal. He made a deal saying, "If you, I, I will send disinformation out into the UFO community if you give me real UFO information. What's to say he wasn't doing that with the Soviet Union or another government? Right. So there are lots of considerations here for why something like area 51 might exist and the stories about ufos would be useful to explain it. i think that's another i meant to bring that up earlier the uh regarding the i want to believe concept is that the there's this notion that like people like dody or elizondo or uh, any of these people are putting out some real information some of it's real a tidbit of it's real uh, maybe more than a tidbit, but also a lot of it's just noise, but the real is there, apparently. Yeah, so one of the things, like I said, with Bill Moore, his explanation at least was that he spread some bad information so he could gain access to good information. Right. Now, there isn't any indication that he released any right. good and information. And why would he also like uh, trust them to give him good information? Exactly. It's one of those things where it doesn't really make right. sense. And the more you look into everything around Moore and the various people who are operating um, in his orbit um, or Doty's orbit, it, it becomes very confusing. Um, there's the anecdote um, regarding um, Richard Doty and Linda Moulton Howe. 
Um, are you both familiar with this? Yes, it very much parallels Leslie Keen and Louise Elizondo meeting before the December 2017 article. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So um, for those that aren't aware, Linda Moulton Howe was um, a science writer who worked in public television at the time. And she made a documentary, A Strange Harvest, which aired, I believe, in Colorado in 1980 or 1979, somewhere thereabouts. Um, Richard Doty became aware of this and invited her to Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, just outside of Albuquerque, roughly the same area where Paul Benowitz was at the time. Now, he did something that was very similar to what he was doing with Bill Moore. He proposed a deal to her. I will show you the secrets about UFOs. And this was while she was working on a documentary for HBO, um, HBO which I believe is was supposed to be called the ET Experience. Um, but it's unclear why he was doing this because she was researching cattle mutilation. And by the early 80s, cattle mutilation wasn't really on the public radar that much anymore. So there, as to what Bradley was saying earlier about like the idea of the radiological experiments that were happening at the Nevada test site, um, there's something to the possibility that maybe the government was involved in the early stages of research on cattle mutilation and they were trying to put her off by giving her, you know, disinformation. One thing that um, I find quite interesting to compare um, an account like that to what's happening at the moment is it seems like they were relatively smaller scale back then. It was just like isolated individuals or like with UFO cover up live, it was like uh, just this production team. But what's going on at the moment feels much bigger in scale. Like they're holding congressional hearings. They've brought a, a lot of, you know, respectable journalists at like the New York Times, the Washington Post on side. Why is that? Why is this such a bigger, or why does it feel like it's such a bigger operation um, if it is an operation at the moment? Well, so the UFO community was very, very small historically. I mean, it really only became, came codified as a thing in the 70s. There were people who were involved in like making claims prior to that, George Adamski and others who would speak of UFOs, but there wasn't like a real hard scientific interest in, in it until the 70s. And uh, J. Allen Hynek, uh, Jacques Valle, and other people began sort of lending an air of credibility to it. So the earliest people who rose up, it was a small community at that time. Uh, Linda, Mol Linda Moulton Howe was just, you know, she was someone who was random, who made a random TV documentary and then fell down a figurative uh, rabbit hole with cattle mutilation. So the operation wouldn't have had to have been big um, at the time. However, to make a point about that, um, MJ-12 was covered in the New York Times. It appeared in mainstream um, news outlets. It was covered both here and in the United it Kingdom because of researchers that. who were writing about yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't know uh, well, so it, it was much more skeptical because the press was skeptical of UFOs until recently. Sure. The reason it's so much bigger now is because entertainment has infiltrated exactly. media. Um, media is, you know, news is entertainment mm -hmm. now. So it's much easier to conduct lar a large scale operation like this in the news because primarily someone like Tucker Carlson who promotes cattle mutilation and all of this other stuff. He, he's an entertainer. He's not a news person. Right. Um, the people who speak on this, most of the journalists don't really have a background in either science or understanding like history. <laughs> They're just, many of them come from backgrounds in entertainment writing until they make, you know, 
their byline that gets them more yeah, serious that, journalism. That, that seems to be a um, trend with journalists. I've seen like a lot of them, like I, like with the Christopher Steele thing. I think that was a great example of like they they right. they wanted to be screenwriters, so they made this guy like this super spy and like stuff like that. Um, the, they got to live a Tom Clancy novel for a couple of years. Yeah, they were saying <laughs> o- OSINT and like OPSEC and stuff. They loved yeah. that shit. Yeah. Um, the yeah. Uh, it's interesting how um, uh, speaking of New York Times coverage that it all started in. I guess the paper of record is a an apt term because uh, I mean started in the New York Times and then it's truth now, which is absolutely insane yep. to me. That 2017 article. Yeah, and it, it's still taken seriously five years on, even though basically every claim uh, – there's not a single ATIP document. Like there's – it's it's my – I don't even – I can't find Lou Elizondo's birth date. <laughs> well, and to the point on like the intermingling of journalists with you know suspect people, um, it's something that's always sort of happened. You can go back to like the 50s and 60s and occasionally – you know, magazines um, and newspapers would get caught um, publishing bad information. But generally, there was a drive, there was a financial incentive to employ people who were not, who didn't have, you know, um, conflicts of interest. But if you look at the bylines on that 2017 article, one of the names is Leslie yes. Keene. Now, if you know anything about Leslie Keene, um, she has a long history. Other people, I believe, like Jason Colavito, have talked about her relationship with Bud Hopkins. Yep. But even if you limit it to just her journalistic endeavors, in the 2000s, she was involved with something called the Coalition for the Freedom of Information. This was a fake nonprofit set up by the Sci-Fi Channel to promote their Taken series. Are you serious? And yeah, so it was set up by um, someone connected to John Podesta. I believe it was his brother, oh. Tony, who worked for a PR firm. They set up a fake nonprofit. And the nonprofit itself, like the goal of the nonprofit was to get documents on Kecksburg. And Leslie King was at the front of this. Um, she sued NASA and ultimately um, got documents. But much as the story we see now, she didn't get anything in use. Uh, in 2008 or 2009, when the Kecksburg documents were released, it was just like, well, we don't have anything. Like, here's some stuff like that might be construed as like UFO related, but no, no bombshell. So like she has a habit of overpromising and underdelivering. If you look at other people like the debrief, um, one of the writers for the debrief, I believe it's MJ Banias. Is that how you I say the name? Benias. Benias. So um, before the debrief kicked off or as it was kicking off, he wrote um, what was essentially a puff piece for Steve McDaniel, who was also involved in the debrief, his prior project, Skyhub. But he wrote this for Vice without disclosing uh, prior connection. Now, it's unclear when Steve McDaniel became involved in the debrief, but it again suggests that like the UFO community is just this – you know, there's this incestuous relationship between the people involved. Leslie yeah. Keen is also has been an advisor to the to the Stars Academy. Yeah. Like all of these people, they have conflicts of interest. They should not be writing for you know the paper of record, or they should not be promoting claims by people in the UFO community when they're working with yeah, them. More, more so than anything else, I think this um, this saga, this UFO saga, the past few years, this recent disclosure. Um, push has been more so than anything else just a fucking searing indictment of the sorry state of journalism right um 
And that, that like, that's everything that they've been covering the Havana syndrome stuff yeah. specifically, mm-hmm. like American journalists won't touch particular parts of that story. The only ones who I've really seen who really hyped up the fact that the initial claims were coming from CIA officers, I believe it was briefly mentioned in a ProPublica article in 2018 or 19, but it was only recently that people started pointing out in the Telegraph, um, I believe was the paper where they stated that the initial CIA officer who experienced claims then lobbied hard to make other people believe they had the same symptoms. Uh, No American press outlet has covered the fact that the German government just dropped all investigations into it because they said they couldn't find anything. So, like, it's a sorry state in journalism today because they're promoting essentially just the government's side of the story without anything more. We noticed a very bright star-like object raised behind the rim of the forest. It was rising slowly at angle in our direction. Then, when it had reached a considerable height and was right above us, we saw a flash like an explosion. Then this object turned and disappeared out of sight of tremendous speed. While the sightings in the Soviet Union are sensational, the story of Gulf Breeze will play a major role in our program tonight. We're down here in Florida, where we've assembled a whole town full of people who say they've seen the UFO that's haunted this community since last November. The fact that we are in contact with the extraterrestrials shouldn't be hidden from the people. My name is William Coleman. When I was at the Pentagon, I was public information officer for Project Blue Book. Before that, I was a fighter-bomber pilot, and I saw a flying saucer. We in the Soviet Union are interested in exchanging information on UFOs and extraterrestrials. Hands in very oval-shaped eyes, uh, very narrow nose, uh, slit for about slits for years, no hair on the head, uh, kind of a bulb-shaped head. Tonight, for the first time in history, men and women from all over the world come together via satellite to share their experiences about unidentified flying objects. Live from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., LBS presents, in association with Seligman Productions, UFO Cover-Up, live. Please welcome the distinguished actor-producer, our host, Mike Farrell. I, I know Felix Biederman on Chapo has brought this up a lot. The the, the, <laughs> the concept of um, the uh, defining characteristic of our time being a lack of closure. Yeah. Um, it's true. I, I, you see it all the time. It's, it's stuff like this. Like we yeah. could get closure on the end of Havana syndrome. 
but nobody's covering it. Well, so they don't want it to. They want it to linger. The point is the way the news cycle works, you can't have a story stay in the news for more than a couple of days. Um, the shooting in Texas surprisingly has lasted more than 24 hours because of how horrific right. it was. But like, if you look at other stories like what we're seeing here with Havana Syndrome, with UAPs, these aren't stories that can sustain themselves for more than, you know, a 24, 48 hour cycle. So they drop something here, they let it linger, story dies down, they drop a new piece of information, and they just keep dropping more and more. They don't want closure, they want it to linger. Yeah, the uh, the, the recent debrief article with the birds is a good example of that. Which is insanely long. It, insanely long. Like, I... Uh, Tim McMillan is just a, uh, he's, he's something. I mean, I don't know what to think of with the debrief I posted earlier today where I, I it was like, there's two options. Either they're true believers who are unaware that they're being used by national security for these purposes, or they know and they just don't care I think it, I, uh, because it speaks. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say just from what I've heard from a number of people, it's uh, assuredly the latter one. <laughs> Yeah, so it's that thing. I don't necessarily think they themselves are, you know, spooky because none of them appear to have any real connections, but they want access to people who, you know, have those connections. So there was like the story of, I forget the guy, but it was a guy who was bullying Lou and he got demoted and Tim broke that story. But it's like, how do you gain access to that information unless, you know, you have established strong connections in the intelligence community. Right. Well, the only way you're going to do that is if you're writing puff, piece, puff pieces right. for them. And um, uh, Green Street, um, um, uh, Stephen Green Street from the uh, New York Post recently uh, basically admitted that on John Greenwald's podcast. He said that uh, he was being used by, and then John Greenwald asked him to clarify whether he means people in the Pentagon, outside the Pentagon. And he says, Louise Elizondo. He became their trusted guy, just like uh, Tim McMillan and uh, um, uh, Brian Bender. I was going to say the Politico writer, Brian Bender, who also admitted he felt used. Now, I don't think Bender, uh, the way he phrased it, it wasn't like he was being used intentionally. He didn't really understand what was happening. So I think in some sense, some of these journalists do the basic function of their job, which is to report on these stories, they need to give positive coverage. So there's this incentive for them to believe the government side of things. And I think there's a variety of reasons for this. I've definitely talked about uh, media consolidation and how it was an intentional process. Um, And I think this is one of those byproducts. Like, media was destroyed intentionally so that things like this happen. Absolutely. um, I I feel like people like um, Brian Bender... I feel like they're just really good, I guess, targets uh, for people like Elizondo and company just because like a senior Politico NATSEC reporter, defense reporter, who also teaches at a uh, journalism school named after well-known uh, Operation Mockingbird asset, Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, he doesn't know anything about the UFO phenomenon. He doesn't have time to play catch up. And he also has this incentive where he gets to be the guy to break all the UFO stories. Well, so that's actually a great way to tie it back to UFO Cover Up Live because the producer on the show, Michael Seligman, was not someone who by any accounts had any knowledge of the UFO community. Uh, When I was speaking with Tracy Torme, um, one of the producers of the show and uh, someone who would go on to write Fire in the Sky, he mentioned that one of the gags that they would pull on him is – 
they would go around saying, hey, MJ, you know, seven called and MJ nine <laughs> called me after that because he, he was this guy who had no prior knowledge. So he thought as soon as he knew this information, it would, you know, he would be followed by the men in black. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Richard Doty was able to shape the content of this show because he was able to manipulate someone who didn't really have a strong knowledge of the subject matter. Man, he really is really good at this. <laughs> well, so yeah, I mean, I, I think Doty is someone who innately understands that the people in this community desperately want to be validated. They want the attention of someone in power. So some of the things he did, obviously, he was doing on behalf of the government, but some of the later stuff, um, like, for example, his possible involvement with Project Serpo, yes. as suggested in Mirage Men, yes. I think that's probably something he did on his own, or he did it in an independent function while maybe working for someone like Robert Bigelow, as yes. opposed to, you know, doing it on behalf of the Air right. Force. He's someone, because he understands this, he can just keep inserting himself into that community and people will believe him no matter how many times and he lies. I don't lies. know how many, I, th I think it was just on like Jimmy Church's show recently. Like they're still having him on and stuff. When I think it's pretty clear that he has, and maybe Lou Elizondo has just spook liars brain and they just like, they don't know yeah. how to do anything else. Well, I mean, I think he has his own show on the Gaia network or something Richard like Dolly that. Does? You know, the David Ike. Yeah. The David Ike oh channel functionally. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know there's a series or multiple series where they talk with him over multiple episodes. Fucking so Christ. it's just like he can show up at UFO conferences because he's a guy who worked for the yeah, Air he Force. Knows he knows stuff. He can pull that trick where he's like, I gave you some bad information, but here's the good information. Yeah, plus everybody thinks they're going to be able to get something out of him that nobody else has. So, uh, yeah, this sucks. Right. And it, it's the exact same thing Lou is doing. It's just Lou is going in a much weirder direction because he's embraced, you know, many of the mystical aspects of ufology, whereas Doty sort of never really talked about those as much. Yeah, he talked about like having the yellow book of all knowledge or whatever, but like Luis Elizondo is supposedly a Jedi warrior, according to uh, um, the... <laughs> well, Elizondo. <laughs> yeah, according to the George Knapp book, the skin, uh, Pentagon Skinwalkers book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Lou is just such a weird figure because he... He represents like he represents that thing everyone wants um, in the UFO community, which is um, an insider disclosing information. But if you look at it, a lot of the stuff he's saying is comparable to like the strawberry Absolutely. ice cream. Absolutely, totally agree. Throat singing music, which is why he's why I have trouble like wrapping my head around the fact that people still are listening still, to him. They, like I. I, I have no words. I've, I've, I've talked about this plenty on the past uh, uh, episodes <laughs> about how. I mean, well, I mean, it, it goes beyond people just listening to him, and there's still people who kind of actively defend him in quite quite passionate yep. terms as well. Lose sock puppets defend him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jack Brewer and I have talked about this quite a bit about speculating on uh, how many of these people have just how many sock puppet accounts. Because, I mean, it's confirmed that Lou had, like, at least a few. At least one. Yeah, at least one that we know of. So it's funny that he would actively do that as yeah, well. And he said that it was to, like, do, uh, like, oppo uh, re uh, research to, like, um, uh, I don't remember what his explanation was. It didn't really make sense, which is probably why I don't remember. It was because of the criminal conspiracy. Oh, oh yeah, stalking. that's right. That's right. That's right. We're gang stalking Lou. The criminals that are stalking Lou now that he talked about recently. Criminals. It's so God. He's such a, he's, he, he's a lot. He kind of reminds me of Eric Adams in a way. 
Like it's just so strange. <laughs> it's just so strange. I just it's it's a it's a type of brain that I will never be able to understand. Well, I think the UFO community definitely attracts those types of people, or at least over time it creates them. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things yeah. if you well, if you look at Paul Benowitz is he started off as just like a normal guy. He was a defense contractor who was, yeah, was interested in cattle mutilation. Yeah, he went to a conference in 79, and then within a year, he was, you know, conducting research in a tinfoil-covered van. By the time he was committed um, to a mental health facility by his family, he believed he was being abducted himself and injected with drugs. So it's like this community creates that. Ruined his health. Like, I I remember reading an anecdote, and maybe it was Greitley's book about, like, yeah, the the van thing, and then also in a hotel room, and then also not to, like – be in what was it it was like a you can't be you can't have a room above you or something like that like it it happened so quickly and i mean it's hard to know with that stuff how much of it is disinformation how much of it may actually be like things that may have happened but were misinterpreted i know one of the things that i've mentioned is that i believe he talked about seeing uh like lights and dulcy where, you know, little bouncing orbs in his house or above a barn, if I remember correctly. Um, and I I think maybe even Gabe Valdez who became involved in the research as well, who is somewhat known in the UFO community. He's the one who's, uh, his his cattle were getting killed, right? Uh, no, he was the the cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was the cop. And, but one of the things you look at is that Within 20, 25 years, the military was talking about technology very similar to that. I believe in 2017, 2018, they talked about how, um, I believe, a defense project, and it may have even been in New Mexico, um, like the Sandia Labs or something, they were um, working on a technology, like a nonviolent technology for crowd dispersal, where they would shoot a glowing orb into a crowd and it would project a voice. Now, is that real or not? I don't know, but it's possible. This is the type of stuff the military may have been testing at the time and using people like Paul Benowitz as like guinea pigs. Right. I, I love the um, uh, the the rapper and uh, producer LP from more recently, Run the Jewels. He, I remember him saying once that at any given, because I, I always think about like what the fuck do these people actually have? Like what technology do these people actually have that we don't know about? And the LP said once that at talking about DARPA, he said that at any given time, uh, DARPA is literally just around the corner from developing a fully functional dragon, <laughs> which I think is very well, if you, great. Yeah. I mean, if you look at their connection to the UFO community, I mean, they were responsible for developing the first stealth exactly. helicopter. So like black helicopters in the UFO. Yeah, yeah. Black helicopters in the UFO community. It, it, like they are an actual right. thing. They developed a stealth helicopter that was used in Vietnam yep. by Air America. Yeah, it was used by Air America. Exactly. Yeah, the, I think it's the Hughes five hundred P. Howard Hughes also in the mix. God, this subject. This subject. Yeah. I. I. What? How did you get interested in this subject? So I've always been into UFOs since I was a kid. Yeah. I grew up on the X Files. Um, I grew up in the nineties where UFOs were huge, um, but I, I moved in and out of interest. I was actually in the military for four years in the Air Force in New Mexico, (laughs) but it was one of those periods where I sort of lost interest in it. But towards the end, I sort of started regaining it because um, that's roughly the period where I learned of New Mexico's weird connections to stuff. Um, So I was like, what the hell? 
only ever went to Roswell. I never went to Dulce or any of the other locations. But over the next decade, I started you know, reading more about it, researching it. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, I blew through all of the Benowitz books. Gotcha. I mean, what about you guys? Where did you find you? Well, I, 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 it's funny. My, I was talking about this with my mom recently. She, um, uh, when, when I was in fifth grade, she told me that, well, she told me that when I was in fifth grade, um, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said cryptozoologist <laughs> 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 because I found a Lauren Coleman book once and I just wanted Nessie to be my friend. That's all I wanted. <laughs> and, that, and then when I was 14, I saw a um, uh, an orb just like sort of listing lazily behind my house, like the size of a basketball right above the trees. That, that was sort of really the real interest where it started. Did you think that was a UFO? I if my memory serves me correct, it I cannot explain it whatsoever. And that's the thing. I don't know if UFOs are real or not. So when I talk about disinformation, I'm not saying UFOs are not real. I'm simply saying the information we've been presented probably is not accurate. Totally agree. The um, that's that's the most frustrating part too because um, I had a and the um, previous Dulce Midnight Radio episodes. I talked about. Um, uh, I saw I saw a black triangle in 2017. Um, that was it looked like a star, and then it swooped down and was a black triangle with like white lights on it. And it, I don't know how to explain that because I was also like into like I wasn't like a huge subscriber of Dr. Stephen Greer, but like I was uh, I was starting to fuck with Dr. Stephen Greer, <laughs> and. <laughs> his whole thing about like how it's all like um, uh, uh, alien reproduction vehicles and um, they're doing, it, it really is like a massive government conspiracy. I was into that at the time, which I think is really interesting. What about you, Matt? Have you seen a UFO? So I, for me, I, I've always been interested in them. And my auntie used to have loads of those like, you know, world's weirdest phenomena books. Um, and I used to just pour through those when I was a kid. Um, I sent Bradley a video actually the other week of something yeah, I, I saw. Kind of, of, it was kind of weird, yeah. It was kind of strange. I have no earthly idea what it was, but I think I'm I'm interested in it just because it's such a mysterious uh, phenomenon unto itself. But also, right, it's, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, and then just the kind of the murky sort of constellation of of weird disinformation agents and all the rest of it that goes on around it. I've just always been interested in them. Um, and that's it's, hard, it's hard not to be, to be honest. It, to be honest, it was hard not to feel, despite how cynical I would say I am most of the time, it was hard not to feel a little thrill of excitement when those videos first came out like a few years ago until you realize that actually they've been around the internet in some form for quite a while. It's just the first time the Pentagon's kind of formally being like, oh, yeah. We well, this is, this, this is another thing is that like uh, I saw Adam Kehoe on Twitter uh, maybe yesterday talking to uh, my friend Steve Long about because Adam Kehoe writes for the the drive, the war zone about UFO stuff very skeptically. Mm. And um, he was saying that like, according to like what he knows, there's no investigation going on into the release of any of these um, supposedly unauthorized videos. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which which right. is like that doesn't I I mean to me that reads as like 
I mean, whistleblowers go to jail. They go to prison. Which, if we know anything after the Obama presidency, it's that whistleblowers uh, go to jail. 100%. And the fact that like these unauthorized, unauthorized releases are happening and nobody's going to prison, I think means they kind of don't really mean much. Or they are authorized. Or they are authorized, exactly. Yes. One of the things you learn when you begin researching various government agencies is that a lot of information that gets released in various forms, you know, there are purposes for why that has been released. It's not always just, you know, a benevolent benevolent whistleblower. Sometimes information gets thrown out there intentionally. I believe that's referred to as a limited hangout. Yes. If you want to divert someone's attention from this one thing, you give them something else to focus on, which is perfect for our modern media environment. It is perfect for the modern media environment. One thing I found quite interesting in reading the coverage of this um, hearing that took place the other week is that in the year since this report um, was released and in the two weeks since this hearing, there has been hundreds, thousands of words expanded on basically saying nothing has really changed. <laughs> nothing new has really happened. Um, we're still where we were a year ago. And a year ago, we were still where we were three years before that. So it's difficult to know what to make of any of this, really. Um, but there's certainly, it certainly doesn't seem like there's any kind of uh, genuine intention to discover what's really going on. Uh, no, why would there be? Far. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to discover in 90 yeah. minutes? I mean, that <laughs> hearing was 90 minutes long. If you actually like, if you look at like actual disclosure events where real information was put out, like the church committee hearings right. or something yeah. like that, the house select uh, <clears throat> committee on assassinations, like those lasted more than 90 minutes. Like those were multiple days, sometimes weeks. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like the, um, th- like I'm pr- does Adam Schiff had that committee? The House Select Intelligence Committee? On, like, the counterterrorism and counter espionage, whatever it's called. I don't remember. I mean, he might. I, I'm, I'm not pretty sure. sure he's the head of it. He's the majority leader of it. And it's, like, Adam Schiff. The Steele dossier guy, man. <laughs> like, like, Adam Schiff. Most gullible Democrat in, the, in Congress right now. He's the one in charge Devin, of this. Devin Nunes is also on this committee, I think. Um, he chairs the United States House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. You guys really need to work yeah. on your committee names because that is – we have Cobra meetings over here. <laughs> That's cool, you know, but United States House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Well, it's funny Schiff is in charge of that because that's actually the committee that was set up because of the church committee here. Yes, yeah. yeah. Which really? is kind of a sad state of affairs. I did not know that. Yeah, so I mean, the House Select Committee on Intelligence was created precisely because of all of the disclosures regarding um, CIA abuses and FBI abuses um, domestically during the Church Committee hearings. So that was one of the permanent, like, committees that was set up to review intelligence. We're in good hands. Adam Schiff, he's got... (laughs) Fucking Christ, man. I mean... And that's why this type of information is getting released and no one's, you know, that's why they watched that goofy ass video and did nothing more. Right. Yeah. I mean, as someone who um, would have said at one time that uh, they kind of wanted to believe, it is difficult to hear stuff like that and not just feel deeply pessimistic, you know? Um, it feels like well, it, it's funny. Every, oh, sorry, it just, ahead. it does feel like everything has been so hopelessly curtailed by the reach of like the, the military intelligence establishment now. There doesn't seem to be a, a single area that they don't have some kind of influence over. Yeah. 
Um, so anybody thinking that anything genuine is going to come out of this, I, I don't know what to tell them. You know, I don't know what to do for them. Well, it's funny you bring up the Marchetti quote that I used in my article because like the ending portion of that, if you actually do believe in UFOs, what he says is the only reason um, to do something like a disclosure campaign, uh, disinformation campaign would be if they had something really to hide. So if aliens are real, they don't want people knowing about that. So even if you believe aliens are real, the information they're putting out there is done in such mm -hmm. a way as to divert your attention away from what, whatever that might actually be. Where's Scully? Oh, she, uh, she went to get some ice. Where is she? Scully, what's going on here? Walter, these gentlemen have something very important to tell you. Some alien encounters are hoaxes perpetrated by your government to manipulate the public. Some of these hoaxes are intentionally revealed to manipulate the truth seekers who become discredited if they disclose the deliberately absurd deception. Well, similar things are said about the men in black, but they purposely dress and behave strangely so that if anyone tries to describe an encounter with them, they come off sounding like a lunatic. I find absolutely no reason why anyone would think you crazy if you describe this meeting of ours. You're feeling very sleepy, very relaxed. Alex Trebek, the game show host? Robert, you're into baseball, right? Yeah. What do you think of the baseball episode of X-Files? <laughs> Oh, um, it's, I, I think it's great. I think people misread it at the time. I know that if you read some of the reviews, like they said, it was like relying on um, the magical Negro trope um, that often comes up, but it's actually making fun of that. Like if you actually watch the episode. Yeah. So I, I've seen that a bunch of times. And I remember looking it up recently and that's one of the things that came up in criticism huh. is that it was like playing into that. But the point is that, you know, that it's making fun of that by making the character an alien. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm pretty sure Matt's favorite um, uh, moment in X Files is uh, Mulder teaching Scully to hit a baseball at the end. That's such a oh yeah, that's a great yeah, character. Such moment. a wholesome ending. My personal favorite moment is the share uh, 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 the postmodern Prometheus ending. <laughs> oh, that's it's great. So good. Uh, I think my personal favorite is um, the beginning of. I think it's Patient X where Mulder's like, yeah, UFOs aren't real. It's all yep. <laughs> I've really come to enjoy the, um, oh shit, dude, what's it called? The one where it's a full on comedy episode. It starts with Mulder getting back from school. Oh, oh, the reboot. Uh, yeah. It's the guy from who used to do stuff for the onion. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Mandela effect episode, the lost art of forehead sweat. That's the one, right? I, I love how you can actually take that as the ending of the entire series. If you want, yeah, it's, it's per, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good episode. Also written by the guy who wrote, uh, the Clyde Bruckman's, uh, episode and the oh, Jose wow. Chung episode. I think Chris Carter said that the reason he liked hiring him to write for the show was because he always wrote like he was trying to kill the show. Yeah. That was right. David Duchovny. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, he loved his scripts cause it seemed like he was trying to ruin the show. <laughs> yeah. It's Glenn Morgan, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Morgan. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he's, he's yeah. great. No, uh, yeah, like he has some of the best moments in the series. 100%. Like uh, Clyde, Bl Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose is amazing. It's yeah, it's it, maybe the best episode. 
I still I still go for uh, uh, Jose Chung from yeah Oscar. yeah. Oh, it's uh, also, I mean, it's Robert's profile pic. Yeah. Yep. Lord can bow down. There's something just transcendentally amazing about Jesse Ventura's rant in the garage. Oh my! <laughs> your president, James Carter. Yeah, your president. <laughs> But then Pat Sajak's there too, which really sells yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> the um uh there's there's so many little things in that one too. Like even like when it goes to uh it cuts to the girl getting regression hypnosis and she at first is like with a psychologist and then she thinks she's with aliens and then all of a sudden she's remembering she's on the spaceship and even the like like sort of table that she's laying on is covered in Bud Hopkins type designs. <laughs> I think that episode works so well because you can just take it as a, a a comedy one-off, but it is actually a really good breakdown of how stuff like the Mothman becomes a kind of urban legend, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah. These conflicting accounts of what really happened and some of it's true and some of it's just people misremembering stuff or lying and... And there's also just okay. great human sentiments, like the uh, the bald sort of nerd guy who's just like, I want to get abducted by aliens. And yeah, Chung's yeah. like, why? Whatever for? And he's like, I hate this town. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a great character too because he's like, he, he is very representative of the UFO community. He busts into the uh, autopsy yep. room, starts shooting video, and then um, even when he realizes that it, it's a human, he still releases the video anyway. Yeah, and he starts throwing up, even though he it's a human. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's such a great episode. What a great it also has two of my favorite um, Scully and Mulder moments. There's the the Mulder moment is <laughs> yeah the scream, and then the Scully one is when she just puts the gun to the guy's head. <laughs> you tell anyone about this, you're dead. The um, oh. God, what a great show. He also he played the uh, the fluke worm in the um, Morgan. He played the uh, the host episode, the giant fluke worm in the sewer system. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. What a the cool ending, guy. The ending swim for freedom is brilliant. <laughs> it's so good. Like the the fact that like he he wrote the humbug episode too, the circus freaks. Yeah, yeah. And he said that the way that they um. Actually, the final cut of the episode was not fucking what he wrote, and he said he was so he was suicidal, and he like quite literally the definition of a tortured artist. And he said he was so fucking suicidal and like mad that he wanted to write an episode about a guy who was suicidal. So he wrote Clyde Bruckman's. <laughs> well, you know what other episode he wrote that is kind of insane when you like delve into it? Um, Musings of a cigarette smoking man. He wrote that. He wrote that. Shit, that's well, top and, three for me. That is a brilliant. Yeah, and when you actually delve into that, so like the idea where it's a Jack Colquitt novel where the cigarette smoking man wants to be a writer. But, yeah. I, I don't know if that's actually. So um, one of the people who's actually tied up in um, JFK lore, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name now. Maurice Bishop was his um, alternate. Um, damn it. It's not coming to me now. But, um, oh, David Atlee Phillips. Oh, sure. So he actually wrote a novel like that never got published yep. where he did the exact same thing. So in the Jack Colquitt novel, uh, The Cigarette Smoking Man is writing, it's, you know, passed over because it's seen as too ridiculous because he's talking aliens. about, you know, being involved in all of these political assassinations. And alien assassinations. But he brings yeah, in aliens yeah, and stuff exactly. like that. Yeah. And the David Atlee Phillips novel that never got published, he he sort of admits he was involved in the JFK assassination. 
So I don't know if Morgan was aware of this or not, but it like the symmetry between the two is wild. Yeah, I love how all of these people, like like John Ehrlichman, and like they all just want to be thriller novelists. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a thing back in the day, right? You just you write a novel, you get rich and famous. The great American novel. God, that's so cool. I wish I could have done, been alive then, but also not really because there wasn't like a Clean Water Act or anything. I kind of mm. defined a lot of those early. CIA guys that didn't uh, this idea absolutely they they were bohemian spooks as well as um, yeah intelligence officers yeah and they're the main character yeah. yeah yeah well and if you like believe the stories about it the CIA like they actively recruited people like that you know they wanted yeah, people yeah. who were well educated because they were seen as like the liberal yeah, yeah, yeah. you know intelligence yeah. agency to the very you know conservative stuffy FBI. Alan Dulles, actually, he used to think of the FBI as just a bunch of hicks, basically. And the CIA were like the the sophisticates, you know, the glove trotting. Yeah, Jolly West. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, Hoover actively, yeah, Hoover actively recruited accountants. So, like, anyone who reads a book is probably going to be smarter than (laughs) an FBI agent in that era. And possibly a communist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the people who had connections to the OSS and the CIA in the early days were like very well-read people. Angleton was um, um, like one of Ezra yeah. Pound's proteges, I suppose. You could, you could think of him like that. Um, he worshipped him. He was like, he was big on modernist poetry and yeah. Man, Nabokov had a lot of things to say about Ezra Pound. Can you <laughs> call, I'm, I, I'm not a fan. I like his uh, philosophy on translation though. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the CIA stuff that people talk about, you know, CIA created modern art or whatever. Um, like a lot of it was because those dudes liked art. Like Tom Brady right. was heavily involved in um, like setting up um, exhibits at the Museum of Modern Art in that period because, you know, these were people who were knowledgeable on art. That doesn't mean like, exactly. you know, hey, all the stuff that they did was good, but, you know, CIA people tended to be a little smarter than, you know, anybody else in the intelligence community at the time. I've always thought that if you are running an outfit like the CIA, it makes sense to hire some um, idealists, you know, like some people who genuinely believe in um, the the transformative power of art and world peace and whatnot. It gives you cover. No, totally. I mean, the people who were being involved, like who were being recruited at the time were, many of them were seen as like left-leaning, but anti-communist mm-hmm. specifically because you know they wanted to create um, an american form of art to export internationally so how do you do that you find people who genuinely believe in these things yes yeah. and I'm, I'm gonna in addition to charles burlitz i'm gonna make a point of looking into bud hopkins and whether or not he was involved in any of that he was just a creep really I, I mean, I, I, I mean, mean, I know he was a creep. He, it, it, yeah, based on Jack's first book, right? Jack Brewer's first book. I haven't book. read it yet. I, I haven't read it, but um, some people have pointed out anecdotes to me about some of the stuff that, like, oh, what, who was the other guy? David Jacobs, yeah, right? Yeah, David Jacobs. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. He was yeah. definitely a creep, but, um, like, Bud was a creep. I, I remember posting a video uh, clip on Twitter a while back where it was basically Bud Hopkins coaching uh, like two or three year old yes. um, on how to say that they had a UFO experience because like this girl was, I guess her brother was brought in, but they were still talking to her and Bud shows her a picture and is like, 
what's that? And she's like, she points to the sky and he's like, yeah, you were abducted, right? Yeah. He doesn't phrase it that way, but that's functionally what he's right. doing. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. He's, he's, he's one of those people who like in his author photo rests his chin on his uh, fist and he's, I think it's a good rule of thumb that he's a creep. Which is funny because I mean, I like missing time and I like intruders. It's just, you know, Bud himself is a questionable person. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people with multiple ex-wives are. I mean, the, <laughs> the 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 whole like Leslie Keen romantic relationship being—it's just all so weird. He's such a weirdo. But I guess I guess yeah, all I mean, those, ab- those abstract expressionist guys are kind of. Yeah, and I was going to say that calls into question, you know, Keen's um, reliability right. given the but but Hopkins. Right, connection. Keen's also written books about like the afterlife. Like shit, like that, like all the Robert Bigelow type stuff. I'm also, I want to, I didn't, I don't think I said this on the previous episodes, but I wanted to say that, like, I'm convinced, almost convinced, in my current conviction is that the, all these people, like Bigelow, uh, all these billionaires who are doing this transhumanist re- type research, like, they just want to live forever. Like, that's, I think that's like the sort of thing that they're after here with all this paranormal research yeah no mm-hmm. totally i mean one of the ways i look at stuff like that like bigelow's ufo working group in the what late 90s early 2000s yeah. up through to today with everything he's doing this is all the type of stuff the government was doing in the 60s 70s and 80s with like project Stargate. right they just couldn't fund it they can't fund that stuff publicly because anytime it breaks in the news there's a big public uproar which is, about ins- taxpayer which is money insane to me because like the amount of taxpayer money that gets spent on other stuff is other terrible stuff right, but it's one of those yeah it's one of those things where it's like it's hard to justify you know psychic research being paid for by the government so they export it through other means they're still like the government still wants people in the government i don't want to say the government um but like people in government still want to do this type of research either because they see some use in it like the cia continuing to do various like mk right. style experiments and research at guantanamo yeah. bay um or because um, maybe they have weird beliefs themselves. Exactly. Yeah, that's another um, so thing. They're all human. They, yeah, they like they perpetuate these things, but they they've exported it to private investors. So it's sort of like this big money circle where we'll give you a contract here, Robert Bigelow, if you fund research in this other area that maybe we can use in some other esoteric ah, manner. Okay, gotcha. Well, I mean, if you look at these people, they all have different types of contracts through various. Oh, things. absolutely. I mean, uh, Bigelow's had various contracts at various points in his life. Um, the research project that was running from 2008 to 2012, ATIP, um, like it, it was like no one really knows officially what was happening right. with that. So, like it was government funded, but a lot of that was coming from people who had contracts in other ways or um, were doing things that weren't you know, fully government supported. Um, before you go, can, um, cause I'm still, I, I, I checked out of the ATIP, OSAP like shit a long time ago. Can you, is, is there, is, <laughs> I'm not the person. That okay. Never that. mind then. Yeah. I only know there's still, um, a dispute over whether it was a program or an activity. No one's been able to certify that What the fuck that does yet. that mean? <laughs> Well, on a, prog- a program would be an official like government program. An activity would be something done under the auspices auspices of the government, but not like in an official capacity. So it's something like Lou may have taken on on his own as like a side project. Okay, does it matter anyway whether 
what was what i mean like to the lay person to the civilian like doesn't matter any of this a tip off app like clarification no this is all ufo that's stuff that's what i thought I mean, so in like one sense, if it was an official program, it confirms Lou was holding a position of power in the government related to UFO research, which maybe validates something he said somewhere, but no one can really point to how because you still have to uh, review the individual claims he's making. Yeah, his issue now is trying to kind of like reestablish his credibility, I suppose. That's rather than prove yeah. uh, the existence of aliens anymore. I'd, I'd, I'd argue that that's probably why people like the the people at the debrief are still trying to, like you said the other day, Robert, keep the shit going. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the other thing with Lou is, I mean, if you look at like the trajectory of whistleblowers in official and unofficial capacities. His is very abnormal. <laughs> well, so it's also like, they're hanging him out to dry at this. Oh yeah, absolutely. If he was used in a dis- disinformation campaign, the way work, uh, the way government agencies work is they compartmentalize stuff like this. So, like one of my core research areas is COINTELPRO, and one of the things that you see is that a lot of the FBI agents who were caught doing things, um, the program was set up in such a way where they could be cut off and you know prosecuted, so that it was the agent who went rogue, not the agency. It sounds like so, what like they say about Richard Doty. Yeah. So like Lou in the capacity he's serving now, like the government's just letting him hang, like letting him hang there now. So he served his function. He's no longer useful. They're just going to let him, you know, get attacked. And he may have known this. He may have known this going in too. Right. Yeah. It was actually Lou Elizondo who called uh, Doty a rogue agent on uh, Zach Saichi's show. And the, um, uh, yeah, the the way that like Lou, Lou Elizondo was like projected into this, I think is still very uh, strange. I personally, the way from what I've heard from people and the way I look at it, I think that this is basically punishment for. I mean, for yeah, probably be- some very petty, small personal level stuff. I mean, it could be. I mean, like I said, though, it, it also something he may have known going in that at some point. Like they were going to distance themselves from him and that this is what he would do. Right. He's he's going to be comfortable for the rest of his life. If you look oh, at he, people in the UFO community years later, Doty is still doing UFO the UFO circuit. Travis Walton is yeah. still doing conferences and getting movies made about and from it. Uh, what just, I, what, from in terms of like public image, Doty has a lot of kind of sinister associations with him, but at least with Alexander, there's enough there that people can choose to believe he's quite benign if they he's, re- he's, he's really yeah. extroverted too which helps yeah yeah um he's also going to be able to live off of this for the rest of his life he's going to get shows on like the discovery <laughs> channel or the travel channel. oh yeah he's going to get documentaries made about him for the rest of his life so he's set it's going to be like pete vagman on world of the psychic in ghostbusters 2 <laughs> hairless pets weird this gi father encouraged Hi, welcome back to World of the Psychic. I'm Peter Venk. I'm chatting with my guest, author, lecturer, and psychic, Milton Angland. Milt, your new book is called The End of the World. Now, can you tell us when it's going to be, or do we have to buy the book? Well, I predict that the world will end at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. This year? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's cutting it a little bit close, isn't it? I mean... Just from a sales point of view, I mean, your book is just coming out. You're not going to see any paperback sales for at least a year. 
It'll be at least another year before you know whether you've got the miniseries or movie of the week kind of possibilities. I mean, just devil's advocate, Milty. I mean, shouldn't you have said, hey, the world's gonna end wait, in 1992 wait a or better hey, yet, this, 1994? This is not just some money-making scheme, all right? I have a strong psychic belief that the world will end on New Year's Eve. Well, for your sake, I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah. On the uh, last Dulce Midnight radio episodes, we did uh, our favorite UFO stories. What's your favorite UFO historical oh, story? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's out of the um, Gulf Breeze um, sightings. Yeah. There was, I think, like three or four Army um, PSYOPs officers, if I remember correctly, who were involved in some weird assassination plot that... Uh, no one quite knows what happened there. Like they were arrested locally and there was coverage of it, but like not much has been written about it since a bunch of people in the UFO community um, have written about it, but like no deep investigation. So it's like one of those weird, you know, experiences that happened and there isn't a lot of information about. So it's something I think everyone should look up. Sick. The, uh, man, we got so much stuff to look up now. So what's that? The Gulf breeze, the Gulf breeze incident. Oh, yeah. So the Gulf Breeze incident. Sorry, I, I speak like everyone. <laughs> no, knows yeah, talking about. So I do. Matt. In, yeah. In the late 80s, there were um, sightings of UFOs in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Right. And this guy named Ed Walters allegedly took photos of UFOs. And right. Pol- right. It was like Polaroid or something. Yeah. Uh, and this ultimately shows up in UFO Cover Up Live because one of the segments is devoted entirely to Gulf Breeze with residents of Gulf Breeze participating remotely. But ultimately what happened allegedly was um, Walters staged the photos because after he moved out of his home, a reporter found a model of a UFO strikingly similar to the one that appeared in his photos in his attic. Right. Um, This sounds a lot like the Belgium uh, triangles. Have you heard of that? Yeah, Yeah, man. I was so bummed when I found out those were fake. (laughs) (laughs) I love a good UFO wave though. Oh, yeah. I also love a good hoax. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty cool one. The photographs were pretty good, to be fair. Was Bud Hopkins involved in Gulf Breeze? I remember hearing about something he was... Um, I don't believe so. He may have interjected himself. A lot of people became involved. I know um, Donald Ware, who was a MUFON guy, um, promoted it a lot. A lot of people in the UFO community at the time were promoting it as like one of the seminal events of the period. It shows up in um, like UFO magazine a lot and other UFO media. Um, a lot of people covered it. The, the QFOS people, the Center for UFO Studies people were really interested in it. Um, I, yeah, because it was like the photographic evidence that Walters was presenting appeared to be some of the best photos right. at the time. It, the, I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia for it right now. And um, under the tab that says UFO research group response, the first line is one member of the quote unquote grassroots research group, the mutual <laughs> UFO network. <laughs> ben. Apparently Ed Walters took two polygraph tests and passed them both. That's uh, been, that's a, when he was uh, asked if photos were faked, but I mean, you can, you can, it's very easy from a polygraph. Yeah. You, I mean, you can, you can yeah, accidentally like, pass. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like a professional actor, like I, I think they've done it on professional actors. And most of the time, like 
they pass because if you, it's basically just controlling like your nervous system. Yeah. So like if you're good at controlling emotional responses, you can get by. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure the guy who also invented the polygraph also invented Wonder Woman. <laughs> Is that true? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure like he was, a uh, he had enough, I can't remember his name, but he what? like had, he was, he was a poly and had a, a relationship with his wife and his research assistant. And you ever think about the, uh, the whip, the cuffs? Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is a, a that's funny. It's very funny, <laughs> but yeah, you, it was just him working through his personal kink. Yep, and he invented the polygraph. <laughs> Wasn't the Spider-Man costume designed along similar lines to be kind of like a gimp suit? I could I'm see sure, that. I'm sure I read that. <laughs> yeah. All comic books are just you know guys <laughs> in the 40s and 50s working through their sexual. That's Jack Kirby. He was cool. In all seriousness, though, is there anything? Um, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to tip us off to? Yeah, sure. So um, I can be found at Diabolique, uh, the website, my personal blog, Mondo Americana. You can find me on Twitter at Robert Scavarla. I hope to have more writing upcoming and possibly like some cool projects to announce by the end of the year. I saw in your bio, you have a bylines of Atlas Obscura. Yeah. So I wrote an article in 2017 or 2018 on the Satanic Panic. Oh, that's sweet. I'll check that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So check that out too. I have bylines at um, a bunch of different places, um, both big and small. Um, most recently with Covert Action Magazine on Edward Bernays. So no way. Well. I didn't cool. know that. Very cool. Um, I guess in conclusion, I was just wondering, I, I think I know the answer to this uh, already, but do we expect much of note to really uh, to come of this, uh, this hearing that happened the other week? <laughs> we'll get another hearing yeah yeah ex- exactly it's it's a and then another hearing and then another it's hearing. a promise yeah, to schedule a discussion about having another hearing <laughs> in which we will promise to schedule another discussion but also there's going to be no classified shit in the hearing because it's classified yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is all of it it's, it it's so frustrating but at the same time it's so expected i think oh, yeah exactly i don't, so I don't know don't know why it's happening. Like it's yeah. so obvious. It's just, it's very frustrating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But yeah. Uh but yeah, thanks for coming on, Robert. This has been class. Quality, oh, no, as we thank say. you. It was fun. Oh yeah. Been awesome. It, it, there's not a lot of um uh uh bright UFO old UFO heads, I guess. Uh <laughs> so it's been fun. <laughs> it's always fun for me because I, I kind of dabble, but I'm not overly knowledgeable about it so it's always fun just to get people together and just listen to them talk and just uh yeah pick up some new some new stuff that i can pass off as my uh, opinion the ufo community is weird as hell so it's always hard to know what's going on yeah it's a great way to put it yeah yeah cool um so it was fun talking to you both i definitely would love to come back on. yeah definitely um we'll we'll get that sorted out this has been really fun sick Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good one, Robert. It's good to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Cheers. Whose song is that remembered? At random serpenting, through fatty coils emerging. Some other thought it's thinking. This light shines above the houses on the ground. This illumination visited upon the whole land. Unmarked helicopters hovering. The Lord is coming soon. Your call.
comes the supercopter, here comes the noise it makes The demon was an idea, the demon is awake Well scratched mark left across the surface of your mind This hour now upon us, the hour has now arrived Unmarked helicopter